So we're going to read a few different parts of Genesis 1 and 2. So it's, it'll be up on the screen, a bit of a collage, because I, I want to save a little time and not just read the first three chapters of the entire book. So read with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the, fe- of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so, it, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So work. So a number of years ago, I spent, if you know, I spent a lot of time as a corporate guy, and I oversaw uh, operations for uh, the largest tax company on the planet in Canada. And part of my annual work was to go and visit my regional people and to sit with them and to go over the annual meeting or annual um, uh, targets and their plans and, and go through all of that. And one year as a leadership, we decided that we promised the, the shareholders that we were going to hit a 2.5% increase in profit. So my job then was to go out to my team all around the country and sit with them and help them figure out how are you going to get there. And one of these visits was with a woman up in northern Ontario and if you know anything about business, um, then you know we were quite content as an organization. If every one of our offices was to make about 15 or 20 cents on every dollar into our pocket for profit, we were happy. This woman had run her region so well that 48.5% was coming in. So 50, basically half of every dollar we were taking in was going right into profit. So she was an incredible manager, did a great job. So when I took her out for lunch at a mid-priced restaurant and said, hey, you're going to have to add two and a half more percent to that. She wept. She started crying in the middle of the restaurant. And at that moment, I realized there was a problem. And I was a Christian, but at that moment, I didn't realize what is the extent of to which my faith touches my work. Surely my faith should have something to say in this moment. Is this, and it's not just, you know, we're often told being a Christian in the workplace, you know, do a good job, be friendly, and be ready to share the gospel at the water cooler. That's not even close to what Scripture says about, about your work. It says so much more. But I didn't know that at the time. So I was sitting there in this restaurant thinking, I know the gospel must have something to say about this broken system. 
but I don't know what. So from that point on, I spent a lot more time thinking about what is the nature of work? Is really, does God really actually care about my day-to-day work? Or is work just to fund my ministry? Or is it more than I think? Is it less than I think? I, didn't, I wasn't sure because I had never really been taught. And there's so much that Scripture says. The reason we run a faith and work class here and we do so much, and I spend so much time working with people in the marketplace is because it's vital. So we're going to spend just a few moments looking at just what the creation portion tells us about our work. And we're going to see, and I'll try to keep it as tight as I can, the dignity of work, all work, the mandate uh, to work, and then the hope for our work. Okay, So we're going to see those things as quickly as I can. So first, the dignity of our work. Now, the Bible's unique, we know that, but it's unique in, in, in the world of ancient cosmologies, with meaning all these ancient cultures had creation stories and creation myths. And when you hold them up side by side with the Bible, you notice something. All of them say one sort of a thing, and the Bible seems to say something quite different. And specifically, uh, one of the, if you want to capture the, the summary of what they all say, look at something, it's a Babylonian myth from about the 12th century BC, so maybe even earlier, but that's the latest it was written. So it's really old, and it's called the Anuma Elish. So it's their creation story. And in it, on the seventh tablet, I'll put the picture up on the screen, here is what the god, their god Marduk says. My blood will I take, and bone will I fashion. I will make man. I will create man who shall inhabit the earth, that the service of the gods may be established, and that their shrines may be built. This is typical of ancient cultures. Every other religion of the ancient world said, Humanity was created by the gods to serve the gods, slaves. Saying things like, you know, the work is below us. Putting our hands in the dirt, building shrines, sacrificing, it's too much for the gods. So we're going to make humanity. And they're going to kill things for us and and give us our food. And that's what the sacrifices were. They're going to build shrines. In a nutshell, humanity was built made to be slaves for the gods. But the Bible pops in with such a radically different perspective then and now, for the way to understand work. The first thing we read about God in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's beautiful in, in the Hebrew, but I won't say it. And when it says that God created, it's the, it's the Hebrew word called bara. Now, that word bara means created. That's good. The one interesting thing is, everywhere else in Scripture, this word is used, it's never applied to humanity. Humans don't bara anything, ever. We build, we may create, but not bara. God alone baras things, and that means he creates from nothing. If there's artists in the room, listen, you're not imaginative. You have to build and paint on things that you've already seen. If I ask the most intelligent, imaginative person in the room to think up a new color, can you do it? Well, you can't, because everything we create is built as a composite of things we've seen. It's like something else, using colors we've seen, sounds, smells so on. God alone creates from nothing. And then, so that's a unique aspect of what God does in creation. But he does the most miraculous thing of the entire creation story, maybe, as it relates to work, is that God works like a laborer, like a normal blue-collar guy or gal. And when, when it talks about him um, resting from his work, in the, at, we read it there in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, it specifically says, and the seventh day God finished his work and he rested from his work. Now, it's, this is why this is important. There's a lot of words the biblical writer uses in the Genesis story to talk about the work of what God does. 
lots of words, asa, all these different words. But when he uses the word melaka, it's interesting because that's common work. That's, that's like grunt work. And God on the seventh day rests from his grunt work. Not that he's tired, but the imagery is there. This is the language the biblical writers and God has chosen to use to say that God works with his hands. Now, the fascinating thing about this is that in, a, in, a, in Exodus, when describing the Sabbath, God says, and we'll put that up on the screen, six days you shall labor and you do all your work. But on the seventh day, uh, sorry, the seventh day is the Sabbath to your Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work. Malachi. So, what we're being told, because he could have been other words, remember. God could have used other words, but by using the same words that we are to rest from our work as God rests from his, the suggestion is this. Your work and God's work are similar. He rests from manual work, and the kind of work you do is like the kind of work God does, and vice versa. And this brings an incredible dignity to work. Because it's not that he has made us to do the grunt work he doesn't want to do, but he's made us as apprentices to him to do the work he does. And so when we start talking about work, understand that there is nothing other, and I said this to you before when I preached through Revelation, other than the sex industry, there is no work in the world that isn't God, can't, that can't be God-honoring or cannot be redeemed. There's a way to do it. You can press me on that, but I think those are the two. Sex industry is probably the only one we can't redeem. We can redeem people out of that industry, but to redeem that industry, I don't think we can. But that's for your discussion groups to talk about this week. But let me go even further. James Hamilton, a professor and pastor, says, the first thing the Bible shows us about God is that he is a creative, competent, efficient, caring worker whose work provides for others, blesses others, meets the needs of others, and makes life possible for them. And when we press it even further, and we did this in our Bible study earlier last week, when we press it further and we look at that and you start to outline what kinds of work does God do in the creation story, you begin to see that it doesn't matter. See, the culture will tell you certain jobs are more valuable than others by how much they pay you and how much they put you on Instagram. Right? So if you get paid more, the assumption is more valuable work. If it's, I mean, look at what we've done. We're now electing celebrities as our president and prime ministers. We're crazy. And that's because we've understood the cultural idea of what work is. This is why when I was a bartender, and I said this to you as well, people would say things like, so what do you really want to do with your life? Because serving for a living and serving others is not a viable career. right? And this assumption of the lack of dignity in certain work is completely based on something called the sacred-secular divide that is raw and that is false. In, and I can't talk about that. Take the faith and work course with me. We'll go into more detail. But when we look at all of the things that God does, let me go as quickly as I can, because there's a lot of this, 12 of them. But I'll put them on the screen. I can email them to you if you want. First thing we see is this. God is a creator, meaning he's dignifying artistic work. When he speaks, he's dreaming up new things, right? He creates things from nothing, meaning he's a thinker. He's dreaming things that don't exist, and then he's putting them into place. And the things he creates is to bring order and then bring glory to himself and flourishing to us. And so everybody who's an artist out there, don't listen when people tell you, well, the world is going to heck in a handbasket, people are starving, and you're spending money on paint. That is a poverty mindset that makes no sense in the economy of God. Because I wouldn't dare go to God and say, people are suffering, why'd you make the Himalayas? Why all these stars? Couldn't you use some of that energy to get rid of Putin? Right? 
Would you dare? No, you wouldn't, because God, for whatever reason, says, I'm going to make billions of snowflakes no one's ever going to see, and they're going to fall in mountains and melt and be urinated on by animals, but it's worth pouring beauty into the world anyway. So, he's a creator. Next. Speaking, which dignifies intellectual work. Because God, creation is palpable, right? It's physical. But the work of creating is largely intellectual. Thinking, planning, and then speaking it into existence. So those of us who are spent, who, whose lives are spent thinking, that's dignity in that, because God is a speaking God. He's a thinking God. Next, and I could spend more time, but I can't. Manufacturing. In, in chapter 1, verse 7, it says that God makes the expanse of the sky, and this word, asah, means to manufacture it, fashion it from something. So here we have God doing the work of building what he has imagined. So those of you who work with your hands, dignity in the work. Next, separating. So this is the ordering work of God. He sees the light and the darkness, the waters above and below, and he separates them. This is like, for those of you um, in our house, I don't do much of this, sadly. My wife does a lot of it, separating laundry. This is what God does. He takes everything and he says, okay, this goes here. These are the underwear, the socks, the t-shirts, the whites, the darks, whatever they are. The separating. And the next phase completes that work. It's the assigning work where he comes and he assigns. He says, the light, you're going to be for the day. And night, dark, you're going to be, or darkness for the night. And he begins to assign where things go. If, if the first one, if separating was separating laundry, this one is folding it and putting away. So God is doing this sort of work. Start thinking about in your own careers, past, present, or future, how you do this. Some of us are manufacturers, separators, assigners, and it goes on. Next thing, planting. This is the cultivating work of God. So although in parts of this, this creation story, it says that God causes the vegetation to spring up from the ground, when he speaks about Eden, it says that God plants it. And the assumption in the Hebrew is very clear. He takes a seed and he stuffs it in the ground with his thumb that God gets his hands dirty and actually builds and plants it. And a garden is improvement on the earth. See, the raw world is just the raw ground. The moment you put a garden there, you are improving creation. You're, you're, um, you're drawing out its hidden potential, right? And that's what God does. And this is a primary thing we're called to do, which is to cultivate this earth, to take this world that he has hidden treasures in, and how do we cultivate it and pull it out in some way? How do we mine those hidden treasures? Next one, I don't know, seventh? I don't know. Naming. So here's intimate work. He names things day and night, heaven and earth. And we see here that creative work, but also the intimate caring work. When you name a child, you think about it. And when you give it a name, you're not just naming it and giving it a task, but you're envisioning a future for it, right? When we gave Caleb the name Caleb, Caleb in Hebrew means like this fighting little dog, Right? A dog that wants to, like, won't let go of a bone. And we're, that's part of what we envisioned. We want our son, in part, to be that sort of a human being. And naming, by doing so, God is doing that. He's giving it a future so that when we name our children, they say, this is who my parents intended to be. This is who I am called to be. It's part of the name. And God is doing that work. Next one, assessing. So here's the scrutinizing work. He looks back. He stands back and says, he saw creation. He saw that it was good, which means God had to assess it. Is it good? Is it bad? Because he assesses the work to be good, but the Adam being alone to be bad. So there's an assessment. This is like the quality assurance guys and gals, right, in the, in the work. They look in, I mean, I need a lot of this here. You have to, like you see, I make mistakes every week in the service. I need people around me who will notice my mistakes and catch them for me. I need 
these sort of people. Be a scrutinizer. And that's that one, another kind of work. Another one, blessing. So this is empowering work. So God creates creatures and he blesses them. And by blessing them, what he is doing is he is imparting some of his self, his own will and power and saying, here's your task, and now I'm going to help you accomplish it by giving you something. And this is part of what Paul, Pastor Paul, has done for years, mentoring, training, and caring. By pouring into people, God is, we are blessing people, right? We're doing God's work of blessing and empowering them to accomplish the task God has given them. So it's another thing God does. Uh, ninth, tenth, tenth, mandating. So here he then assigns humanity to work in the garden. And he mandates, be fruitful, multiply. He's a manager. How many of us are managers in our job? We're then telling people, here's what your job is. Do this, do that, do that. So again, brings dignity to that sort of work. Eleventh, sustaining, caring work. So we know from the rest of the Bible that God remains active in sustaining the world, but he also creates a world that runs on its own. Please understand, everything is upheld by the hand of God, I know that. But there's seasons, and there's rain, and there's drought. There's rhythms that he has put into the world. And this is part of the work a lot of us do. Yes, we help keep the church going, and our businesses going, and our families going. But we also set it up to run so that when we're not around, it's okay. Now God's not, never not around. But it's the same idea, that we are there to do this caring, sustaining work. Last one, though we could say a few more, but I'll leave it here, is appreciating. God sits back and enjoys the work. At the end of it, he says in Hebrew, tov meod. He says, um, behold, very good. It's very good. And he enjoys it. He revels. And I don't have time to read it, but if you read Proverbs, it speaks in chapter 8 about how Christ was there with God in creation and how God delighted in me, says wisdom, Christ. And I delighted in him and the work. And there's this delight that God takes in his work. And so, very quickly, if this is the case, we can say no better thing to close this first point than Tim Keller. In the beginning then, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do, but that was, uh, but that was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have a more exalted inauguration. So, I repeat, all work that is for the glory of God is dignified and good work. Simple. Next, the mandate. So after dignifying work, we then see what is the mandate to work? What are, we, what are we supposed to do? And this is pretty simple. By being given the image of God, the assumption is that you share not just an image, a likeness, but the work of and the authority of. When Christ says, render to Caesar, he's holding the coin, he talks about the image. Because Caesar's image is on that thing, it carries the authority of Caesar. You must accept this as legal tender, because Caesar says so. It's his image. But also, it's Caesar's. And so the image being stamped on humanity says, you have authority. I'm telling you, you are now co-regents with me in the world to go out and to carry on my work. You have my image, so you have to do the work I do. And that work specifically is described as ruling and subduing, having dominion and then subduing. And these are... This is ruling is obviously stewarding, having ownership over to an extent, not literal necessarily, but stewardship meaning this is mine. I'm going to care for it because I'm overseeing it. But the subduing is this cultivating of making it better, of digging our hands into the dirt and building a world that will glorify God and will allow for humanity to flourish. That's the two tasks. And maybe the most beautiful thing I noticed when I was studying this here was this. There's only one other time in all of Scripture that the two words, 
rule and subdue are put together. One other time, and it's not by accident. In Numbers 3.7, we're told that the priests are told to go into the temple and rule and subdue. But not literally. The numbers that the words that show up specifically are they shall keep guard, which is to keep keep it and work it in the garden, uh, over him uh, and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister work. This is uh, cultivate uh, at the tabernacle. And the words are different because the culture they're trying to get the context. You know, one is in a garden, one is in a, in in the temple, but it's the exact same Hebrew words. And the reason this is significant and the Jews have thought this forever, and so do scholars, is this. If you remember way back when I preached last Christmas, I guess, on Leviticus, I went through the temple. And if you remember, the temple, and especially the Holy of Holies, is intentionally modeled to look like Eden, right? And the architecture inside and the furnishings are olive trees. They're meant to look like Eden. And so, when we hear that the priests are to go into Eden and to keep it and cultivate it, and then we look back and think, oh my goodness, that's exactly what Adam and Eve were done. They were put into Eden to act as priests. To care for and guard it, meaning keep it holy, just like the priests have to keep the temple holy. That's your job, Adam and Eve. Keep this place holy so that I can be there with you. And then, not just keep it that way, but improve it. Make it better. You take this rural landscape, put your hands in the dirt, and draw out iron ore, and build things for my glory. And so humanity is called, the mandate is to be priests of this world. Okay? Is that, is that mind-blowing to anybody else or just me? I know, you poor, you poor church every week. It's like Carl seems so excited all the time. But I am excited. But here's the challenge, the frustration with this mandate. Is sin does come into the world, and it makes mandate-keeping very difficult, if not impossible at times. Not, not impossible, but difficult. We read a few weeks back, Eve is given this one curse about childbearing, right? Your, 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 your pain at childbirth will be multiplied. So the mandate to fill the earth is made harder because of sin. It can be harder now to fill the earth. But not just that, the curse given to Adam says, now the mandate to rule and to subdue the world is going to be much harder because the world is now going to resist your efforts to cultivate it. You want to build things for my glory? There's thorns. You want to make this world beautiful? Listen, the wild animals aren't your friend anymore. They're not going to like you. And there's weather. And there's all sorts of things that are going to make carrying out this mandate more difficult. And this is why in our workplaces, doesn't matter if it's a church or any other place, there's relational problems. There's, there's times where you're going to have to adjust your plans because your staff leave you for Nova Scotia. No, it's fine. I'm just joking there. But it's true. But we're in a world that things are like this. And as a result, we're always having to do... And even if everything goes perfectly, have you ever noticed that when you imagine, even if you're an artist, actually, you have something in mind that you want to build or to paint or to create, or to take a picture of. And as you take it, you're like, it's a good picture, but something missing. You never quite accomplish what you want. Everything falls just short of being what you're hoping it would be. And this is the effect of sin. And if sin is constantly working against our work to make the world like God. So it's, we should expect it. We should expect it. Now, if that's our mandate, to go in the world, subdue it, cultivate it, and rule over it, but it's harder, then what is the hope for work? Because work, our relationship with work is broken in the world, and there's so much can be said, but let's say it's just two things about it. We either make too much of work or too little of work. Okay? First one is to make too much of it, is to make us... The, has anyone ever actually gone to their high school reunion? Really? Well done. I'd never go. But, but 
you don't have to put your hand up because I think you'll be lying if you say you didn't think this, but <laughs> who has not thought about how other people are going to perceive what they've made of their lives? Listen, I was voted most likely to be a stand-up comic. Yeah, I was, I was constantly joking, always causing trouble in school. So when people hear I'm a pastor now, listen, that's not to my glory. <laughs> not, not my school. They're like, really? You? Uh, they're shocked. But when you see, when you worry, even for a moment about, boy, people have accomplished more in their lives than I have, you're beginning to see how you make too much of your work. And that's just a small example. When we look at our work and think, if I just attain this job, get this role, this salary, this title, this office place, this pastorate, if the moment we start to make too much of work that it'll provide the meaning and significance we want, we show the effects of the fall. We have broken our relationship with work. It's no longer going to be a healthy one. But we can also make too little of it. And this is almost not more common, but it's certainly everywhere. Where people often say to me, and now you're never going to say it because I'm saying it publicly, will say things like, you know, listen, work is work. It's just a job. I do this to pay the bills. I do this to support my ministry and my hobbies and the things I do on the side. Listen, I get it. We've all had crummy jobs. Lots of them. But it's actually an unbiblical way of looking at your work. Because all work is God-honoring and a gift from God. And so we have to not see work as being too little, but actually in its proper sense. And maybe the, and, you know, either side, if, you're, if you think about sitting on a horse, that's what you want to do. But if you fall off on one side, you think it's, the work is too, is bigger than it is. Other side is to think it's too little. To sit in the middle is very difficult to straddle it. And the Bible gives us a very simple way. In fact, I, I did this too. I looked this this week to see, you know, what is the ideal life? Just Google it. It's embarrassing. Um, depends on the person. Some say ideal life is to work not at all, right? Be, a, be a, a housewife of Niagara region where you stay at home and you can do whatever you want with your life. No work at all, some people think. That's the goal. Very Greek. The Greeks thought that. But then others will say, no, no, work, work, work. It's everything. Others will say, never get married. No attachments. Be unattached. Others say, no, without family, you're useless. What is the ideal then? What is the proper relationship to work? And the right answer comes in Psalm 128. The Jews provide us in this psalm the outline for what a perfect life is, and this is where we'll close. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And so in Israel, the ideal life was a relationship with work. You must work. We were in Dorothy Sayers. I had to cut the quote. But Dorothy Sayers is right. We are made to work, but not to make too much of work or too little of work. And so this psalm says work is vital. Part of a happy life, a good life, the ideal Jewish life, is to work and to benefit from it. Eat what you've created, but not just benefit you. You should be fruitful, meaning, notice that, isn't it funny? Work and have children. What are the, what's the mandate in Genesis? Cultivate and be fruitful multiply. So Israel says, if I can carry out the mandate of God, I am living the best life. It doesn't matter about status. It doesn't say anything here about status. Live that out, but not just for you. Notice it says that you're to do work that benefits you, you eat the fruit of your labor, benefits Jerusalem, the city, but then other, the next generations, as Paul says, where this is Paul, a little bit of tape. And so the ideal life 
according to Israel, according to God, is carry out the mandate of God. Work, benefit yourself, your family, and the generations in your city with your work, and carry out the mandate to the best of your ability. It says nothing about the amount of money you make. It says nothing about your cottage. It says you don't need me time. Not that you don't need time to replenish, but that's the wrong focus. This is the point. This is the healthy relationship with God. But the only way to get a proper perspective on work is to understand the cross. Because at the cross, it shows us that work is far more than just drudgery. Because what was the work of Christ? If you take our foundations course in January, we'll talk about the work of Christ. Well, the work of Christ was self-giving entirely. He got dirty. He literally died. And the work of Christ was not too little. He wasn't undignified because he was an itinerant preacher. But rather, he was glorified because it was self-giving. And he even says, when he finds out he's going to be betrayed, he says, now am I glorified, and now are you glorified, he says to God in John 13. I think it's John 13. And so, the cross shows us that work is far more important. The work of God, this nitty-gritty work, is what allows for us to live and to have eternal life with him. But it also shows us that our work can never bring meaning and security and peace. So you can't think too little of work, because work is dignified, but you can't think too much of it because our work will never bring you what only the gospel can. And so you have to have both of these, because Jesus' work was menial and undervalued in his time, but it was God-honoring, and so was yours. Jesus' work was self-giving, not self-inflating, but it was still God-glorifying. And so our role now is to say, okay, I didn't know all this. I now repent of the way I used work. I have to repent of how I've used my work and thought of it. And now, Lord, help me to see place that my work has in the world to help that poor woman in Thunder Bay that I was talking about. And how do we go now into the world? And I spoke at Brock this week about this. How do you now go into the world and say, where has sin eroding and decaying the goodness of God? And how does your work, whatever that might be, factor into the process of arresting and reversing that decay? I don't know. Your lawyers, your doctors, your baristas, garbage men and women, I don't know. But I can help you a little. And that's our goal as a church. How do we do this? But without Christ, there's no hope. You'll just be constantly going on this roller coaster of, I love my work, I hate my work. I love my work, I hate my work. I love my work, I hate my work. And that's just going to happen unless you come to Christ. Let's pray.